Texas talking ball. What was that that you said? Texas talking ball. Gonna hoop up beside your head. Texas talking Tell me who can you trust when Texas has Hello, this is reporter Reeve Hamilton with a special edition of the Tribcast focusing on the University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll. I'm joined by... Jim Henson of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas. Hey, Reeve. And his partners in crime, Darren Shaw. Good afternoon. And Joshua Blank. How's it going? Thanks for coming. Appreciate you, you having us. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jim didn't look too appreciative, honestly. <laughs> well, why don't we just uh, dive right into it? We've had this poll rolling out all week. And maybe start with Monday. We had the uh, potential likely matchup of a Wendy Davis, Greg Abbott general election. What did we see there? Well, let's see. The, uh, the top lines uh, for amongst registered voters, and I should point out that the, the poll this time, and this was true last time, I guess, with the, uh, the May poll and maybe even the, uh, the winter poll as well, we have an uh, overall sample of 1,200. 1,200 registered voters, which is uh, at least, uh, what was it, Josh, earlier, 800. So I think we've gone to yep. you know, an extra 400. That's right. So a so margin of error uh, right around plus or minus three. Uh, and amongst registered voters, we have Greg Abbott at 40 percent, Wendy Davis at 34 percent, and then a quarter of the electorate who right now says they just don't have an opinion on the thing. Um, so about a six-point lead, uh, Abbott over Davis in the trial ballot. Is a quarter um, – is that a high or low number for undecideds? You know, you always get to this point in an election when people are like, how are people still undecided between these two starkly different options? I think uh, historically uh, – and by historically, I mean both in Texas and then if you look at trial ballots from other gubernatorial races about a year out, it's not a particularly high number. And it's especially, I guess, pedestrian, you know. If you uh, if you take into account the fact that there's no George W. Bush, there's no Rick Perry, there is no incumbent – uh, who kind of anchors the electorate, gives people a sense of you know playing off somebody. So these are, even though they're relatively well known, um, you know these are not figures who've been around a long time. You know Abbott's been around a while, but his name recognition isn't startlingly high, and uh, Davis is, is somewhat of a newcomer. So the quarter of the electorate doesn't have an opinion right now. Doesn't really surprise us. Relatively was a key word there in terms of well known. Relatively well known. That's right. Uh, we some people think that the Abbott uh, favorability numbers look pretty low. They actually don't look low if you look at almost any other attorney general in any other state. I think there was an expectation Abbott would be more well-known because he's such a prominent figure. And, and Texas has been involved in a lot of high-profile lawsuits, especially against uh, the, the federal government. Right. Well, and I, well, I guess just to address the, uh, the elephant, as it were, uh, you know, the same day this came out, a poll came out showing Davis significantly further behind Abbott, I think 15 points behind what is the difference between the polls that might lead to the different results? Well, there's a bunch of differences. I mean, I think, you know, the key difference is methodology. Uh, you know, they use robo- it, the poll you're referring to, PPP uses, you know, sort of autodive, these robocalls and the auto response where you key in your response. And we have, you know, we'll all weigh in on this, I think. I mean, to me, the key difference, of, you know, even, even, you know, if you allow that maybe they got a good sample, the methodology wasn't a factor, is that they do, they do, but we think do a follow up and push the don't knows and that makes a difference um you want to weigh in on that josh i mean there's yeah i mean i think that's right if you look at our data and probably take the 25 percent with no opinion and just start to, to distribute them across the candidates by party id we're probably going to get pretty similar results and so you know what you say is these are people who probably haven't been thinking much about it but if forced they'll you know fall back on their partisanship 
Um, and that may be what happens on election day. But it also may not. So, you know, it's just a different result, I think. You know. I mean, there's a lot of things to think about here. I mean, you know, we're a year out from the election. I mean, one of the things that we've said before, and Josh had an exchange about another poll in Politico, I don't know, what, a month or two ago during the summer, it feels like. But I don't know, maybe it was fall. In which, you know, the, this discussion is should you push should you push in polling this far out or not? And the issue here is if you push people too soon when they're not paying attention, what you're actually doing is kind of manufacturing public opinion rather than measuring it. What you're doing is pushing people into a space. And I think very often the problem is you wind up measuring something different, right? And the something different is probably party identification. That yeah. makes sense to you? I think it's important to clarify when we talk about a push, what we're saying, we're referring here to a what we call a just a trial ballot question, which we say, hey, if the election were held today, would you vote for, you know, and then you randomize the names because you don't want order effects, but uh, Greg Abbott, the Republican, Wendy Davis, the Democrat, or, you know, don't you have an opinion? The push that, that Jim and Josh are referring to is if someone says, you know, I don't know, uh, there's a follow-up question you can ask, which is, well, if you had to say, which way would you lean? Um, that's called a push. There's a diff- variety of different ways of doing it, but they're all versions of that particular question. Um, you know, uh, PPP and other uh, organizations do that no matter kind of where we are in the cycle. Um, you know, our take has been it, it sort of depends on a lot of different factors, whether we include a push or not. Um, the, the possible objection is, is that when you push people this far out, you're not really getting serious, reliable information. Right, so that that's the argument against it, and uh, you know we've we've used pushes before. We have not used pushes before. As you get closer to election day, I think there's a much much stronger justification for doing it. campaign polls. Do it routinely, right? But I think it's important to distinguish a campaign poll from a you know sort of more general public policy poll, which is what the UT poll, UT trip poll really is. Um, you know, there, there's a related discussion that is what the composition of the electorate is going to look like. You know, we've got a registered voter poll. We know historically that, you know, 35, 36, you know, percent of registered voters show up and vote in a midterm election, right? So a little more than one out of three of these registered voters are actually going to cast a ballot probably next year. And uh, if you start looking at those factors, which we know correlate with turnout, interest, past voting behavior, the margin between Davis and Abbott, or Abbott and Davis, I guess, properly framed, grows considerably, you know, for instance, we didn't play this up, but we have a likely voter screen we use when the election nears, which mm-hmm. we didn't uh, draw a lot of attention to this time around, because it's dependent upon self-expressed interest as well as past voting behavior. If you actually apply that this far out, the margin is 14 points favorable to, to Abbott, right, which is actually very consistent with the PPP poll. Mm-hmm. Now, if you use that screen, you get about 70, 75% of registered voters get through that likely voter screen. Right? So it's it's not a particularly demanding screen. You know, in fact, you're only reading out one out of four, and you probably ought to weed out two out of three <laughs> as you get near Election Day. Uh, but I, I think it does suggest Davis's problem moving forward, which is that even though she's done very well in building some name recognition uh, and, and, and becoming kind of a, a, a powerful force in Texas politics, uh, most of the people right now, if, if you look at people who say they're not interested or don't vote, they love Davis. <laughs> Are they going to show up? Uh, you know, she's killing it with people who say, I'm not interested in politics and I never vote. Uh, and that's a challenge for her longer term. Well, does the, does the, do the poll numbers reflect, you know, there's this notion that Davis is, you know, the, the best Democratic candidate to come along for governor in many cycles. Uh, do, do the polls suggest that she's outperforming the, what you'd expect of a standard Democratic 
candidate? Well, actually, no. I, I took a look back at this because I was sort of interested in this exact question. And, uh, you know, I went back to our uh, February 2010 poll because we didn't have it in the October 2009 poll, which would have been the more comparable one. And Bill White was at 35 percent against Rick Perry at that point. Um, and, you know, I think most people would think that Wendy Davis is a much stronger candidate uh, for governor than Bill White. But, you know, she's looking to be in the same place as he was uh when you know around the same time and her favorability among democrats i mean i mean one thing i think that is getting picked up here too is that she is more of a buzz candidate among democrats right now than abbott is among republicans and i think there's a lot of contextual reasons that that makes sense that the republican party is much more divided um there's obviously a big so we say vigorous conversation going on in the party about what the party should be about so among you know abbott's favorability is 36 favorable, 24 unfavorable overall, 41% neither. There's a lot of people uncommitted. Among Republicans, it's 62-4. So Republicans like him fine, um, but there's still some people on the sidelines. And there's still some, some Republicans, I think, that are not completely ready to commit. You look at Dave, Davis's favorability among Democrats, and it's just overwhelming. It's like 70 favorable and two unfavorable. <laughs> yeah, although I, I just have, I'm sort of the wet blanket with respect to Davis <laughs> on this. I, I've, I've heard this story with Tony Sanchez. I heard it with Bill White, both of whom in retrospect look like they just weren't very good candidates. I remember, you know, Sanchez was going to energize Hispanics and make a big run. And Bill White was the perfect, you know, businessman, conservative, Democrat credentials from a big metropolitan area. So, uh, you know, now we have the, uh, you know, the, the firebrand public policy expert woman from Fort Worth, you know, who's won in a purple district. Maybe. Um, but I'm, I'm, I remain to be convinced about this. Well, sp- speaking of uh, buzzy Texas politicians, you guys took a look at Ted Cruz. How is he being served in Texas from his... Uh, uh, high-profile actions in D.C.? I think he's being served very well. Uh, um, You know, sort of these two results that we got that are, you know, kind of discongruous until you really look at them and understand, which is, you know, we asked, we actually ended up with this very neat natural experiment because our last poll was in June and it was before the, you know, the faux filibuster or whatever you want to call it, and it was before the government shutdown. And then we went into the field with our new poll the day after the government reopened. And so we were able to look at, you know, how Cruz was doing before basically his big high profile events and how he was doing afterwards. And, you know, amongst the people that he really cares about in Texas and the people he should be caring about, which is Republicans, he's doing very, very well. And so in the uh, 2016 primary ballot, he was in first place uh, in June with 25 percent, but he moved up seven points to 32 percent in our October poll. And, you know, if you want to know where that come from, it looks like directly from Rand Paul and Marco Rubio. And so he's sort of really jumped ahead there. Now, at the same time, we have these fave-unfave numbers where he went from being, I think, plus nine. I think it was 40-31 right. in June. And now he's at 38-37. So, you know, his, his favorables went down a little bit, but really his unfavorables went up. Now, where did they go up? I mean, they went up among Democrats. And this sort of happened to him nationally, too. If you, The national polling basically shows there's a bunch of people who didn't know who he was. There were a lot of Democrats. They found out who he was. And, and they not, hate him. And they don't like him. <laughs> um, you know, so it's the sort of tale of these, you know, sort of... Which we should note is yeah. fine with him. Yeah, which is fine with him. I mean, that's that's exactly right. So, and that's not going to hurt him electorally. Absolutely not. Yeah, if you look at the ballot numbers, so we asked a 2016 Republican uh, presidential primary item and a 2016 Democrat 
primary item, and the, the Democratic one we haven't spent much time on because Hillary Clinton's at you know sixty seven percent, and no one else is really even on the radar screen. Although we have a uh, we, we always have this kind of crazy contest, which is you know pick your ridiculous, absurd, upset possibility. Um, and and my uh, my money is uh, is on Elizabeth Warren as being the anti Hillary candidate. In uh, well, 2016. Well, you know, it's interesting actually because if you if you jump into the tabs um, on on base on Hillary uh, and on that ballot where she's actually weakest, and I mean weakest is very relative here when you've got 67 percent, but it's among the uh, the extreme liberals. So that she actually does a little bit less well among the extreme liberals than she does among the somewhat you know sort of leaning liberals and sort of you know somewhat liberal uh, respondents. And and Warren has clearly got the opposite trend. Whereas among the extremely liberal, I mean again within within the context of the right. numbers. Right. But you can see that at least starting to form. So it's not totally crazy. Yeah. I, I appreciate that, Josh. But, <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, if you're looking at... Yeah, we should say Warren was at seven. Yeah, we, yeah. as I said, it's all no, relative. Warren's at five and, and <laughs> Biden is at oh, seven. Okay, so these are single-digit candidates. We get them but, confused sometimes. But I do find, you know, you got just a slew of Democrats, Andrew Cuomo and Martin O'Malley and Mark Warner, and they, they basically draw one. Uh, Biden, who... Uh, you know, I won't speak for my colleagues here, but many of us don't take seriously as a candidate, <laughs> is at seven, which I think is a function of name recognition and, you know, muscle car aficionados or something like that. Um, but Warren is at five. She actually is a little bit on the radar screen. And uh, my, the other element to this I think will be interesting going forward is that Josh is right. I, I think there's a sense, and Warren initially, to the extent she's got any kind of juice, it's it's with sort of liberal opposition to Hillary or that Hillary doesn't quite represent us enough. I think longer term, her potential is as uh, less of an establishment candidate. I I have this sort of pet theory about establishment versus anti-establishment. And Hillary's, I think her weakness now is less from the left, although that's that will give rise to a little bit of opposition. I think her real weakness in the Democratic primary and beyond is as a, you know, utterly conventional sort of standard Democratic candidate. So Elizabeth Warren is going to Ted Cruz... Hillary's David Dewhurst. You heard it here first. That's right. That is that is my <laughs> yeah. my crazy unsolicited. Well, prediction. it's an interesting contrast, right, between what the part what's going on in the two parties right now. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And on the uh, one thing, uh, you know, if you add Ted Cruz and Rick Perry support together, you get forty two percent in the Republican primary in Texas. Forty two percent, and that's amongst uh, roughly eighty percent who have any kind of preference at this point. So the the kind of native son favorite son uh, standing is at uh, 42 out of 80 right now. And all the other candidates are basically fighting each other at a, you yes. know between 3 and 7%. It, it, you know, it would be nice to see if Christie's speech and you know victory and then attendance speech right. on Tuesday night moved the dial for him at all in Texas. But he's kind of packed with everybody else right now. Yeah, okay. the elephant in the room was at, what, 4 or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> were, were, you surprised that, were you surprised that Perry, did, Perry didn't move at all in terms of his support, right, either up or down? Nope. That's right. Uh, is that because they were in Texas, or is that sort of representative of, uh, you know, his I, I doubt he's potential? Moved, yeah, I doubt he's moved much anywhere because he just hasn't been in the, in the news all that much. I, I don't – there has been a little bit of buzz in the states where he has gone to try to woo businesses. So in, in California and let's I, see, Illinois – Maryland. Um, in Maryland. New York? Couple, New York. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. right. And a couple of other states. But uh, but that wouldn't obviously be manifest in the Texas data. And it's not clear to me it would be manifest in those other states, yeah. although it's possible. I'll be surprised if it's manifest in the other states, frankly, although that's the idea, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's get a little bit away from politics and into policy, if we can. Uh, you guys also took a look at the uh, how Texans are feeling about the Obamacare 
implementation. I don't know if you actually pulled on the website rollout, but I think uh, a little no, more we, substantive than that. How, how are we feeling about it here I in Texas? I would just say this is Internet Point. Our site worked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hats off, YouGov. Um, uh, yeah, you know, what we did was something interesting. Well, I, I, you know, we think. Um, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. So, we, you know, one of the benefits of having this bigger sample that, that Josh and Darren were alluding to earlier is that we can we have a little more faith and we can kind of slice and dice a little bit more so what we did is we took half the sample and asked them randomly chosen and asked them basically what do you think of the ACA Obamacare you know favor un- favorable unfavorable and then we took you know a handful of the elements that are associated that are in, that are contained in the legislation and asked the other half of the sample about those individually to you know kind of broadly look at this idea that people like the you know like a lot of the components but don't like the thing itself and, and now, reason, you could frame it a bunch of different ways and the ways, reason that's but. important is just because you know if we ask people what they think about the affordable care act and then start to ask them about the provisions it's very likely that their attitudes towards the affordable care act are going to then influence what they right, say about right. the individual provisions and that's why you either got the question just about the ACA or you got this set of questions about the provisions, and that way they couldn't influence each other. And so we, what we found for Texas on the overall assessment of the, you know, the ACA or Obamacare, and we just put both in the stem at this point, um, was 33 favorable, 54 unfavorable, which is about on the line with what we've seen before and about what we would expect. Um, right. the, you know, the intensity of preference is pretty striking. I mean, for, right. 46% said they were very unfavorable compared to 15%. We said very favorable. And 98% of Tea Party Republicans are unfavorable, which isn't surprising, but it's it's fun to see it. Right. I mean, you imagine a couple of the folks in the Tea Party just kind of hitting the wrong Well, people button. make mistakes. I mean, that was, you know. So they, they, they hate Obamacare more than Democrats love Wendy Davis. Yes. 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 <laughs> That's right. That's that's an easy question. <laughs> but, you know, you see in the data the what the White House has been hoping for for the past three years, and that is that the sp- Specific provisions of the Affordable Care Act will kick in and people will love them because they, they and this is true, they test very, very well. Um, you know, so for instance, if you look at, um, you know, uh, pre existing injuries, uh, allowing children to stay on their parents' insurance conditions. conditions yeah. yeah. Um, I always think of injuries. I haven't had, I've had more injuries than conditions. So, um, but you get 53%, so they strongly support the pre existing conditions provision of the ACA, you get 42% who strongly support allowing children to stay on their parents' health insurance until they're 26. So and I, I know this is exactly what the White House is, w- was looking at when these things were in, and, and, and so they've been you know, kind of hoping that the, indivi- the popularity of the individual provisions will carry the act. And I, I've always thought that was a, you know, an interesting bet, um, but, uh, but you also do see in some of the data there are some weaknesses to you know, some elements of the ACA that are not very popular, and then of course there's the global reaction, as you mentioned, to, to the rollout and. Well, what are things. the parts that are not popular? Yeah. Well, they they hate two elements in particular. They do not like the individual mandate, and they're not real crazy about the employer mandate. So the individual mandate says, hey, you got to have insurance, you know, whether you like it or not. And I think uh, the numbers on that: fifteen percent strongly supported that. Fifty-four percent strongly opposed it, <laughs> right? So the mandate, you know, the mandate just doesn't go over very well at all. Um, the, the one, and I characterize it as not being particularly supportive, um, although it's it's fairly balanced, which is requiring employers with fifty or more employees to pay a fine if they don't offer health insurance, right? Which is the employer mandate. Twenty-six percent strongly support that. Thirty-two percent strongly oppose it. 
But there's also a lot of partisan structure in that. So 70, right. 74% of Democrats support that. Only 24% are Republicans. Right. right. But if you were looking at a pathway to reform this or to retreat a little bit, um, you know, a, d- a delay in the individual mandate, perhaps, a de- you know, the delay in the employer mandate is already, you know, kind mm-hmm. of on the table. Um, the, the, this is in many ways a roadmap, and I'm sure the White House has comparable data on this, but these are obviously Texas-specific data. It's pretty clear what they ought to protect and fight on and what they may consider retreating on a little bit. And another way to look at it, too, is I think this is a really interesting, I don't know, exercise in points of emphasis. You know, I mean, I think you can under you can look at this data and see why Republicans are sort of, uh, you know, focusing on the effect this is going to have on businesses, focusing on the individual mandate and how this is, you know, a, you know, sort of a threat to people's rights. And, you know, because the truth is, those are the, the two provisions that are unpopular. The rest of the provisions are popular. I think the one thing that was sort of surprising to me on this one was overall 73 percent supported the creation of these insurance marketplaces. And that includes. 59% of Tea Party Republicans. So, I mean, I mean, we like markets. I get that. But it's sort right. of, you know, it was just, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that you most of most of the act is relatively favorable. But if you fight on those two issues, you know, the employer right. mandate and the individual mandate, you'll, you know, that, that's a good strategy. Well, and, uh, there seems to be strong support for expanding, letting states expand Medicaid, right, which, of course, Texas has been pretty well, adamant to, to be um, very very careful about that yeah. the, the wording on that because <laughs> it was a trick question yeah. well <laughs> there are no there a are question that's consistent with what the act actually says but it, it can be slightly misread josh you want to right because what the question really is it's about providing states the option to expand medicaid mm-hmm. and people are in favor of you know providing states the option to expand medicaid as far as actually taking that opportunity and expanding it, we didn't ask about that specifically in this poll. We have in the past. We have in the past, and, we have, and we've seen it on other polls. And I'd say that, you know, even if people are, you know, on board with the idea of, you know, this option, it doesn't seem like in Texas people really want or if anything, it's about 50-50 is what yeah. I've seen. Right. So the particular question, the response of is giving states the option of expanding the Medicaid program to cover more low-income uninsured adults. Okay? People love the idea of giving them the option. But it's not quite the same question as should Texas accept, you know, a Medicaid expansion, you know, the Medicaid expansion money from the federal right. government, you know, even though Texas will pick up a portion of the responsibility for that expansion in subsequent years. And, you know, this is, it's a tough question because yeah. we get all sorts of blowback about, well, you didn't care. Texas isn't going to have to pick up that much. And, you know, people on the left and right. We all could, have their right, We could spend a whole running. podcast oh, talking about hey, questions. You're sitting here watching us all look, look at each other and laugh because this is this is one of the hardest things in terms of constructing a question. That's because a specific question. Yeah. You have to put the numbers in there, and there's just no good way to put the numbers in there. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the people on the left and right are so annoying when it comes to <laughs> polls. Yeah. Well, no, if, if, if the result pleases them, we are the champions of objective methodology. If it doesn't please them, we are hopelessly biased. We found that out. <laughs> I'm just happy that they're reading the poll. Yeah, <laughs> that's a spirit. Well, how, how are they going to take your uh, numbers on immigration? What do we see there? Um, you know, I don't. I don't think we saw a lot of surprises in the immigration. I mean, there's a. It's there. It's another sort of min- manifestation of what we see here, but kind of to a lesser right, we, degree. That makes sense to you? Yeah. Well, we set this up with the same structure, right? So what we did with this one was, uh, you know, we asked our long-standing, very general, comprehensive immigration reform question, with, with which includes a pathway to citizenship, and so that's what half the sample got. And the other half just got the actual provisions of uh, the comprehensive immigration reform package package that sort of 
idling, I guess, right now uh, in the Senate. I think it's parked with the keys yeah, off. Maybe. Well, <laughs> I don't think it's idling. Okay, that's fair. Um, so overall, you know, we saw. But four- is there be a bunch of dead congressmen? Right. Asphyxiation. Uh, well, there might still be. Um, so overall, we found 45% support for comprehensive immigration reform and 48% in opposition. And that's pretty standard. And, you know, among Tea Party Republicans, opposition is 77%. Um, among non-Tea Party Republicans, it's still 70%. And that's pretty much par for the course for what we've done. But then right. the same sort of structure emerged, which is when we talk about the specific provisions, you know, they all do either very well or at least relatively well. So, you know, there's, you know, 83% support business owners uh, having to verify employment status or immigration status of employees. 81% support, you know, tightening the border, right? Um, and these are, you know, um, these are sort of the things that, are, like, Republicans have been talking about in terms of the individual provisions that they'd like to pass if they're going to do right. this piecemeal. Well, this is the, the interesting thing from my perspective is that, look, the, the Republicans have, over the last two or three years, perhaps even going back to the, the latter stages of the, the second Bush administration, have talked about a two-step process on immigration. That first you've got to secure the border, then we can talk about pathway to citizenship. And what you see is, is very, very strong support for these tightening border security provisions, um, which is, Josh is correct, that's a, that's a part of comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, there, there is support for some of the particular provisions with respect to pathway of citizenship, too, even amongst Republicans and, and some Tea Party members. But, you know, the sequencing here, I think, matters. And I think that's what's politically difficult, is that Republicans are sort of insisting, at least at the elite levels, are insisting on doing border security first before, because they don't trust Democrats, I think, on on some of the particular provisions on pathway to well, citizenship. And, and I'm not commenting on that, but mm-hmm, but cool. you see that in the data. I'll bit. comment on that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the pathway to citizenship, I think that's where Democrats don't trust Republicans. And part of those, I think one of the more interesting results is we asked specifically about this sort of, you know, really extensive pathway to citizenship, this long waiting period, fines and taxes and You have to speak background English, checks. waiting period. Yeah, just you know, everything. Optional beating with a stick. Right. And, you know, we got majority support for that. But where there was a difference was... Among Tea Party Republicans, it was less than majority support. It was 45 in support, 52 in opposition. Among non-Tea Party Republicans, 69% supported this compared to 28% who were in opposition, which if you kind of were looking at saying, hey, you know, didn't Marco Rubio just walk away from, you know, the comprehensive immigration reform? Well, yeah, and it makes sense. You know, he just got his, you know, pocket picked by Cruz in terms of being the Tea Party guy. And he probably looks at this number and think these kinds of numbers, which are probably comparable elsewhere, and thinks, I'm going the other direction. Yeah, I don't want to touch this. I'm walking this. away from this. Yeah, I do think this is a theme we've had consistently with the Trib poll is that I, I think immigration – opinion on immigration is much more complex and subtle in Texas. It, it is nationally, but it's much more complex and subtle in Texas than people give credit for. So, for instance, the, the best testing item here is essentially holding business owners responsible for checking the immigration status of their employees. I mean, there is a very, very widespread belief that a key part of the immigration problem is that businesses wink – and encourage people to come over and are not interested in enforcing, you know, in, in being subject and having them subject to the laws of the land. Um, and, and this is true across the state. It's not just a southern, you know, close to the border thing. You see it in Dallas. You see it in Wichita Falls as much as you see it down south. Um, so it's not, you know, I, I, and I say I, I highlight that because there doesn't seem to be the sort of attribution of blame like, you know, these immigrants are causing – there is a very, very strong belief that the incentive structure that exists right now is, is contributing mightily to the problem. Um, and I've seen this in, in uh, primary polling, too, on both sides of the aisle, where E-Verify tests off the charts. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's something that 
you know, insurgent politicians in particular go after more business businessman type politicians on. Um, it's a dynamic we've seen the last couple of election cycles. I think you'll see even more moving forward. Yeah. Jim, do you have something to add? Well, I mean, I, I think it's an ins- I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I kind of look at that, that dynamic slightly differently, I think, a, a little bit, just in the sense that, to me, it's interesting that, you know, the subtleties Darren is, is alluding to lead to a kind of consensus that business should behave better. I think that's not so surprising from the Democrats. I think it's an, it's a very interesting dynamic to see in the Republican Party, and I think it's one of the reasons that immigration is an ongoing irritant to the Republican Party right now because they're having a hard time reconciling what elements of you know the elite level, as Darren was saying, want with what the base wants. Now, E-Verify is one of the, the areas of consensus there, but on a lot of other points, particularly you know the more comprehensive approaches, the base and the and business elites, I think, want very different things. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially in light of the previous results we were talking about, which is you know the second least popular Obamacare provision is you know requiring businesses to offer insurance, and you kind of see why that makes sense, and, and then you come to this result and you say, well, there's this huge support for E-Verify among Republicans, and it's like it's a little difficult to reconcile exactly where regulation is okay and where it isn't. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, quickly, while we still have time, and just in case anyone from the NSA is listening to this podcast, you guys took a look at uh, how people are feeling about their privacy since that has been in the news. Um, Yeah, Darren Shaw really wanted to come down on the NSA. (laughs) (laughs) S-H-A-W. Middle initial R. <laughs> That's actually not true. Um, uh, yeah, you know, we we were interested. In, we were interested in privacy, and we we're interested, you know, at, at a more subtle level in, you know, where the public is and their suspicions of different institutions. So we get so the way the item was set up, we gave them uh, an array of different institutions and asked them, you know, how you know, roughly speaking, how likely do you think the following are to violate your privacy rights? And, you know, at, at the most basic level, what we found is that, not surprisingly, I think in the wake of, of recent media coverage, they're kind of, people are sort of worried about everybody, but they're really worried about, about government institutions by and large. I think that's a – at first cut, I think that's a fair way to yeah, say Yeah, I like to say that the paranoid style is alive and well. Um, but, you know, what was interesting was, you know, in rank ordering these, I mean, obviously it's not surprising to find the NSA at the top of those most likely to violate their privacy and then the FBI the CIA, the IRS. And then, you know, it's interesting. Internet providers and cell phone providers are next, followed by the Congress, your local police, and then finally, the president. And given, you know, sort of this, you know, this really kind of longstanding attempt to tie, you know, all this stuff to the president, I'm surprised he wasn't higher than he was. I mean, maybe you guys weren't, but I kind of expected him to be up. Certainly higher than your local police. I'm pretty sure he's been listening in on my calls. Yeah, well... Well, in some ways, in some ways this is picking up general affect. Um, I, I'm not sure people think the president personally is likely to violate their privacy rights, although... Well, maybe. Democrats tea, certainly tea, don't. Tea yeah. Party Republicans, yeah. yeah. Well, but, sort of a close talker. Yeah, if you look <laughs> yeah. at... Yeah. But if you look at the Congress, 70% of people think Congress is likely to violate their privacy rights. I'm not, I'm not even quite sure... What they're talking about? How Congress would do that? Yeah, the, the Supreme Court, fifty-five percent. Now, if, if I were generous, I'd say, well, maybe they're talking about decisions the Supreme Court could take that would. But I actually think they're probably thinking about you know uh, Breyer or Scalia tapping their phone, and I you know I, I don't quite get that number. Uh, 
but it is what it is. I think so. I, my point is that I, I think there's sort of general suspicion of the federal government, a negativity towards the federal government, and that that ends up meaning that everything that everything they could do that's bad, I think they're capable of. Um, but what I found was interesting is that uh, bank versus cell phone and internet provider. Right, fifty-one percent of people said they they were concerned their bank might violate their privacy rights. Seventy-one yeah. percent said their cell phone provider. Seventy-two percent said their internet provider. Right, so I, I found it interesting that we would be very suspicious of our internet provider and our cell phone provider, but we still trust our bank. And maybe well, that's this notion that the, we have a local right. bank. We have not like we've had any problems with banks in no. recent years. <laughs> I do. I do think there is kind of a locality day-to-day contact here because even I, I think that's probably right. You know, because even the local police did okay, right? Yeah. Compared to a lot of other entities. I mean, and, by, and again, we should say all of these are you know kind of relative in terms of Darren's point that you are picking up a certain affect that we can talk about being Texas yeah. culture. It'd be interesting to see numbers in the United States on this. But. I think the internet and cell phone providers also probably take a hit because they've been, I mean, not just Snowden. Though. I, think, I mean, even before Snowden, when, you know, going back to, I think, like 2006, when the first sort of uh, discussion of NSA uh, spying came along um, on Americans and others, you know, there was this notion that they were, I don't want to say in cahoots, that sounds a little too, too aggressive, but that the cell phone and internet providers were just basically playing along and saying, what do you, you know, okay, if this is what you guys want. So I feel like in almost all those pieces that have come up, they've been linked to, you know, the Verizons and the AT&Ts and just whomever. Yeah. I'm not saying them in particular. <laughs> I use Verizon and AT&T. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I also, you know, I, another thing I thought was interesting about this, and, and it's not a very powerful trend here, but it is kind of interesting to me that and, and this is probably my age talking, that the Republicans were more suspicious of government institutions than the Democrats. Now, on one hand, you could say, well, Democrats, they're more interventionists, you know, and they have less the concerned about them, and they have the president. So there, there are reasons for that, I suppose. And I don't know what you thought of that, Darren, but... I, you know, I, I but pretty consistently given, on all the state on all the government agency assessments, yeah, and maybe the Tea Party thing is driving that. Yeah, Republicans don't trust the government. I mean, I, I I think there's you know not only is that sort of an ideological a feature of Republican ideology. I I think in the last year or so, uh, it's, it's a policy it's, preference. It's, it's, <laughs> an, it's an ideology that has its roots in some sort of empirical <laughs> set of facts. Um, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm well, you know. I'm looking at IRS, check, <laughs> NSA, check. <laughs> um, so it, it, it will be interesting long run to, uh, to to see how this issue plays out. I mean, you, you do have this kind of interesting uh, and uneasy um, uh, partnership between groups like the ACLU and these, you know, and, and Tea Party sentiment. Uh, I mean, I, I've, they've actually seen them join in some lawsuits, which I find absolutely hilarious. I mean, if politics makes strange bedfellows. Uh, i like you know, to be that, in some of those strategy yeah, meetings. Yeah. That's Exhibit A. Um, so I, 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 I do think it's – Jim's right. It, it has an ideological component to it, although I think it's an ideology that is imperfectly mapped on party, even though you see a party effect here. Well, I think an interesting experiment would be to next time we do this, everyone come back and tell us who has actually – Invaded your privacy in the meantime. <laughs> I'm not as high on my bank as everybody else is, apparently. <laughs> in the meantime, I think that's it for uh, for this edition of the special Tribcast. Uh, I'd like to thank Josh, Darren, Jim, and our producer, Todd. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. Thank you. Fun. Fun.